0: your entire ethos needs to be around enabling the success of the people on your team and introverts do that extremely well. People that are not charismatic can do that extremely well and give it six months. The great managers are the ones who brush and floss charisma. People, a lot of times they're the teeth whiteners.
1: Management is simpler than you think, but you're going to have to care about people. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VedEx Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today I've got new author, Russ Laraway, who did leadership stints in the military and in Silicon Valley, before founding Candor Inc. with Kim Scott and writing his latest book, When They Win, You Win. Being a great manager is simpler than you think. Russ has tried to break down management principles into a few digestible components, and then survey, survey, survey to gather the evidence to back him up. But first, is military hierarchy like today's private sector business world? Russ sets me straight right off the bat. So Russ, I was curious to see that you started in the military, and then you went to really big companies like Google, Twitter, and now I I saw... Look like one of your latest gigs, chief people officer at a Silicon Valley venture capital firm, which again, sounds like managing a lot of people. I'm curious from your perspective, the military manages a lot of people. In the military hierarchy, I feel like that's the way the American workplace maybe used to be. And now I think things have shifted for managers and leaders, and it doesn't look like people's vision of the old military anymore. And so I'm curious if your military experience inflected your management experience when you came into the private sector.
0: I think military leadership is grossly misunderstood, actually. Okay. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, by the way, technical hierarchy is present in every single company, short of a, you know, 17 person startup they don't have, but there's actual literal hierarchy in every company. So I think, I think what you're referring to is more of this sort of top down, you know, get, bark and order, people jump and they say, right. you know, you say jump, they say how high and it's just not remotely accurate. And it's by the way, super common. With a smaller and smaller percentage of the American people uh, serving in the military, what's happened practically is there's a greater and greater amount of ignorance about what the military actually does. Funny enough, so if you're familiar with Radical Candor, which has been a 10 times over like bestseller.
1: And that's the book before this one, When They Win You Win, Radical Candor was before. Yeah, but it's
0: written by Kim Scott. Oh, I just happened to be mentioned in it (laughs) six (laughs) times. So and so the model is two axes, challenge directly and care personally. And Kim and I have worked closely together for a long time. We're closely together on the book. We founded a company together after the book launched. We worked together at Google. And one of the things she said, and this might be a little hyperbolic, but in there's a little a little bit of truth is she says one of the biggest, one of the most counterintuitive things that's happened in her career is that she feels like she learned the most about the care personally access from her former United States Marine Corps infantry officer, direct report, and that was me. And so in the military, funny enough, I learned more about how to lead for employee engagement, how to take care of the humans that are in your charge to treat them as full humans. We had to participate in helping them with life skills. This is well beyond shooting straight and fire and maneuver and and uh, five paragraph orders and into, you know, things like having a healthy marriage, you know, how your life's gonna change when you have kids given our operating tempo, how to balance a checkbook, you know, and so I actually, I learned a lot more about being a human leader in the military and the Marine Corps than, you know, frankly, than I would have learned if my first job were at one of these big tech companies.
1: Wait, then I love that because I think the popular misconception again is that the military looks at people in a almost completely utilitarian way. And I think what you're saying, no, 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 it's all the way on the opposite, where we were helping them with stuff that maybe, I don't know, when you went into corporate, These are things that maybe you'd feel, these are crossing the boundaries between managers and employees. We would never do this kind of stuff. The kind of things we did in the military, is that, you know, the caring, I could see carrying that across. But did you really engage as personally in people's lives when you moved over? Did you, because that sounds like you are responsible for a lot more of these people as people than oftentimes corporate managers or small business managers are responsible for their employees.
0: The short answer is yes and no. And so on the yes side, you have to remember that A Marine's combat effectiveness is very much a function of his or her personal effectiveness. It's really the same in the workplace. The difference is in the workplace, what I learned over time was that I needed to gauge the comfort level of my employee for how much they wanted me to be involved with them on a more personal level. Some employees are very comfortable with that and like it. Some employees are quite uncomfortable with that and don't want you that involved. And as a leader, you have to learn how to gauge that and then you have to be respectful of how the employee would like you to engage. The one huge difference, though, that I'll tee up here, that the, I learned in the Marine Corps and have not seen anything close to it in at least Silicon Valley, but my hunch is broader corporate America, is ownership. There's a, a framing of your job as an officer that sounds like this. You are responsible for everything your organization does or fails to do. And they really mean it. Like a simple example, I'll tell you a story. Okay. If that's all right, yeah. So I get a call on a Friday night. That there's an officer on duty 24-7. You know, I'm, I'm on my weekend. And the phone rings. I pick it up. Now you can tell how old the story is because the phone rang. <laughs> right. I pick it up, and it's this officer on duty. And he says, hey, sir, we got a problem. And I said, what's that? He said, one of your Marines is in jail. I said, okay, well, what'd do he do? Well, he got drunk and punched a cop i was like okay well we got to get him where is he he said he's in mexico (laughs) and so i had to spend my weekend sort of investigating this and what's going to happen on monday morning is i have to make a recommendation to my boss now i'm in charge my job is to lead 175 combat marines my boss leads 800 combat marines right yeah and so my job is to make a recommendation this marine needs to be punished my boss has certain punishments he can he can demote him he can dock his pay. He can put him on restrictions. So he's not allowed to leave the barracks for like 30 or 60 days. And he's got some limits on those punishments. Okay. And so my job is to figure out what happened, make a recommendation. Then Monday morning, we're going to have something called non-judicial punishment, which is basically we bring the Marine in. My boss, he's the judge, he's the jury, he's the prosecution, defense. Here's the Marine's side of the story for a couple minutes and then levies a punishment. It was pretty clear we needed to, we needed to hammer this Marine. You can't go to Mexico, get drunk and punch a, a Federale. So on Monday morning, what's supposed to happen is I'm supposed to show up to my boss's office and there's supposed to be a hand, called a half a dozen stakeholders. And, but today it's just me. And uh, he calls me in and, and I'm sort of wondering where's everybody else. And he doesn't even have me sit down, which was customary. Today he wants me standing. So it's all very unusual. And he says, Captain Larraway, what's going on over there in Alpha Company? Alpha Company was the company that I led, 175 Marines. And I said, oh, sir, I don't know what this Marine was thinking, going down there, getting drunk, punched. He's like, no, 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 no. I want to know what's going on over there in Alpha Company. And I said, well, uh, the Marines are really worried. This guy's otherwise a great Marine, but they know he's probably going to get hammered here, and they're all nervous for their friend. And he go, and sort of look on his face. He's, he, he sort of looks down, and he realizes, this is not getting me where I want to go. And so he, <laughs> then he stops, and he says, Captain Laraway, what I really want to know is why is your leadership so weak that your marine thought it was okay to go to mexico get drunk and punch a cop now because i can't have your listeners think i'm actually generally a weak leader i'll tell you a couple things first of all i was a company commander four years ahead of my peer group because of him he believed in my capabilities so much he allowed me to become a company commander much earlier than usual uh, number one, number two, I got put into the infantry. It's the most competitive job specialty in the Marine Corps, more competitive than air, more competitive than tanks. And you get put in there because of your leadership capability and frankly, because your fitness. But that context matters because there's no greater gut punch available than your battalion commander, a guy in charge of 800 Marines, who I really liked, by the way, you know, challenging your leadership along these lines. Second, I became pretty defensive. Like, wait, what? Isn't this guy an adult? Didn't he make his own decision? You know, all that stuff. And then I kind of, you know, sort of after the fact, and we can sort of spare the end of the story, I think, but after the fact, I realized there were some things that I could do that were well within my power that could have maybe changed the way that Marine thought about how he behaved on the weekends. But I like that story a lot because it exemplifies a level of ownership. Like you're responsible for everything your organization does or fails to do, including that. You know, what I've seen in corporate America for 25 years or whatever it's been is starting with senior people, relentless dodging of accountability everybody pointing a finger at somebody else it's not my fault it's the organization's fault i don't have the resources this other team let me down relentless and that's probably the actually the biggest difference that i've seen not this you know leadership style that's i say jump you say how high that's just not how it works at all in the marines
1: so i am curious so i love the example that kind of went from military to corporate and i you know you you had this phrase that kind of jumped out at me at the start of one of the chapters you want to restore dignity to the office of the manager. And I thought, man, that's powerful. And so what you're talking about there about in the corporate world is kind of managers ducking their responsibility. And I think the dignity of a job has to be matched with your willingness to take responsibility for that job. So I think the two things probably go hand in hand. And so I'm wondering if we could jump from corporate into what is true for many veterinary professionals. There are veterinary professionals who work in, corporate headquarters and pharma companies who work at corporate headquarters for large veterinary chains. But by and large, you're talking about 20, 30, 40 people. It's a, that's a big veterinary practice. So in vet med, let's think about the managers in vet med. They're usually getting there because they want to raise. So they're an amazing receptionist or a veterinary assistant or a veterinary technician who had technical skills. And this is the only way to move up to get a raise. Maybe the job is getting hard. If they're in the medical in the back, the job is getting harder. So they become a manager because they they are having trouble or they're anticipating they're going to have trouble with the physical parts of the job. Like maybe somebody in the military who's like, man, this norm, the work of of being a grunt on the ground beats me up. And boy, maybe I'd like to get to some place, you know, back at headquarters or someplace else. or wouldn't have to do that. And then the other problem, of course, is maybe was the situation with you in the military. You are a superstar and your superior says this guy is going to make it so you zoom ahead based on how great you are at the jobs you have and of course you'd be a great manager of others but maybe not so then i'm wondering in that situation where you have people who are kind of getting promoted because it's the path to a raise getting promoted because their current job is rough and they're looking for some other path or they're a superstar at what they're doing and then they don't get the formal training and mentoring this idea that they would take responsibility as a manager and then That manager job doesn't sound like it has a lot of dignity. So I know that's a lot to throw at you, but oftentimes I think practice manager in the veterinary world, maybe I'm trying to get across, maybe doesn't feel like it has a lot of dignity. The veterinarian, it's clear they're super important. And then everything kind of trails below them sometimes. Maybe the vet tech's next. And I don't know, maybe the manager gets a little short shrift. What would you want managers in that situation I'm describing? How would you want them to see themselves or having given you that vision? Where do you see them aligning with the stuff in your book and the stuff you've learned? I know it's the biggest question.
0: Yeah, all good. I got you. I got you. So first, the um just the source of that chapter, that's chapter one, actually, Restoring Dignity, at the Office of the Manager. The reason I put that in there is because one of the problems with management, th- this is a little different than your core question. I just want to kind of clear it first. I think one of the problems with modern management was we've all we've all been chasing the shiny object. So we have these two mental models, right? And by but like so you go to a cocktail party, right? I don't actually go to cocktail parties, but I imagine. That people go to cocktail parties and one of the common refrains you might hear at a cocktail party is I think leadership and management are very different and My point in (laughs) like I don't think that difference matters at all And it's a cool sounding thing to sound smart at a cocktail party Most people who say that have never had an original thought about either in their lives and here's the deal we all apply for a job called manager. That's the job. You don't, like, if you go on LinkedIn, good luck finding a job called leader, right? And we have these two mental models. The manager mental model, this is like, just so let's build this for folks. That's, that's a guy, and he's in, like, a short sleeve shirt with a clip-on tie, He's got some pens in his pocket, thick rim glasses, making sure that the bottles on the conveyor belt are all counted, Everything's in his spreadsheets is left justified and adds up correctly. It's got bad fluorescent lighting, concrete brick walls with a drop ceiling with water stains on it. And yuck, like that manager, that's someone to be tolerated, gross. But the leader, oh goodness, look at her, look at her. She's in a meadow. On a hillside in the distance. You can just smell the cotton linen sheets and fresh air. She actually seems to float. And she does little more than whisper,
2: follow me.
0: And everyone lines up behind her to achieve the impossible. Right? This is useless. This distinction is useless. We can acknowledge that you gotta be a little bit of both. Maybe if you're a little more senior, you need to be a little bit more of her. If you're a little more junior, you gotta be a little bit more of him. So that's where restoring dignity to the Everyone's, In fact, the problem is in our pursuit of the grandiose, more complicated ideas of being a leader, we've left behind the blocking and tackling stuff of the manager that actually is the stuff that drives more engaged employees, work happiness, and better business outcomes. And so we've allowed ourselves to become confused. Now, the problem you described of sticking someone in management for the wrong reasons, super common everywhere, right? Interesting to hear, like I just learned from your question, it's common in vet med, but this is like one of the biggest problems everywhere. And so, for example, in food services, yeah, you get to be the manager in food services because it's like, oh, you're still here? Okay, here's the keys, you're the manager. <laughs> like it's right. just tenure. In tech, where I came from, usually... Uh, you got to be the manager because you were the best individual contributor, like you described. And here's the problem with that. The activities that make you successful as a manager look nothing like the activities that make you successful as an individual contributor. Individual contributorship, just in the simplest form, you, you got to be a little self-interested, maybe a little selfish. You can still be a good teammate and be a little selfish. Manager, day one, your job is entirely about everybody else's success. And so, You're right, people choose to go into management for the wrong reasons. It should be your number one reason. Like, By the way, it's okay if you're a vet tech and your back starts to hurt and you think maybe it's a little easier to run in management, that's okay. Just get real clear with yourself that the most important reason you should be getting into management is because you think your job is to serve others. And that is the job. So people go into management for kind of the wrong reasons. So for example, you mentioned getting a pay raise. Well, in some really good tech companies, they've recognized this problem and they've created a ladder an individual contributor ladder that goes as high as the management ladder. So C-level, but as an individual contributor, especially in engineering, you know, the the prized employee in tech is the engineer. So I I think that's probably got to be somewhat feasible, right? You you know, your vet techs are not all created equal. Uh, Some are going to be far better than others. Some could possibly fill in for the vet, I bet, you know, with 15, 20 years experience. And so imagine a world in which you created a ladder that allowed vet techs to advance to a certain point, And they didn't have to jump over to management in order to get a raise. Here's the thing. So one of the things that I propose in the book is that the world has conspired to confuse the average manager. I have this fantasy that if you sit down every thought leader, person who writes, you know, maybe even me, but person who writes about management, you know, podcasts about management, you sit them down individually, say, how do you think your stuff contributes? To making the average manager great. And I think each person, this is my fantasy, it's G rated, don't worry. But (laughs) I think each person might say, you know, I think it's like they're going through an a la carte buffet style lunch line and they scooch down and they go, you know, they go to the Simon section and pull a little off. Then they go to the Liz section, then the Kim section, they pull a little off, you know, and, you know, the Adam section, they pull a little off and off they go. A nutritious meal, you know, which is a metaphor. They have all the tools in their leadership tool bag to solve every leadership problem. The issue though, for the average manager is that's not at all how it feels. It feels like they're hogtied in the center of a middle school cafeteria while there's a multi-thousand person food fight transpiring, like broccoli bouncing off your head, mashed potatoes sliding down your cheeks. There's too much stuff, it doesn't hang together, and none of it is held to measurable account, meaning the prescribed leadership standard needs to measurably and predictably lead to more engaged employees and better business results. So if you're gonna be that guy, who talks about that complexity being a problem, you have to
2: also be the guy who tries to simplify. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions, a poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar or apply, visit vetexinternationalcom forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two.
1: Let me ask you then from your experience, now having that attitude, is that based on your experience seeing a misalignment between whatever formal training and mentoring was supposed to be happening and whatever people normally go? I feel like mentorship and leadership and management information oftentimes is sort of an implicit thing. where you just get into the position, and you sort of, watch the guy or gal before you, and you kind of figure out along the way, especially in small businesses, did you decide, oh, we got to kind of hook this stuff up better because you saw this fail or, yeah. or did you see these glittering examples of perfection? And like, I want to tell everyone about this. Well,
0: well there's a few, a few things there, but by the way, and, okay. and to complete that thought before, so simplifying the manager job description, if there's only two things, this job description works, whether you're the frontline sandwich shop manager at Jimmy John's, or Jersey Mike's, or whether you're the CEO of Google, or whether you run the vet practice at uh, Banfield. And the uh, job description is number one, you have to deliver an aligned result. In a veterinary environment, I would guess that volume and quality of patient outcomes are, are some of the measurable results that come, right? There's probably a lot more to it, but. Sure. And then you have to enable the success of the people on your team. That's, that's the job. That's the job description for every manager in the world. I don't care if you're the CEO of DuPont, or if you're running the sandwich shop down the street. That's the job. So there's a couple of reasons why managers ultimately fail. The first is you can't even just teach somebody. So there's a model that I talk about late in the book called Stack, Select Teach, Assess Coach. And I realized a couple of things. First, that most companies, if they're doing anything at all for managers, they're focused solely on the T, teach or train. Um that might be mentoring, that might be uh, training. But the first thing you need to do is actually select people for leadership disposition. So stop selecting because they were the best individual contributor. Uh, stop selecting for tenure. Stop selecting because their back hurts. You know, select for leadership disposition. I, I have on my website, I have a, a rubric that you could do that's based on the leadership standard in the book. And so select. And you've already now just tilted the chessboard in your favor significantly because you're bringing in people who already sort of think in a way that's service oriented or, or sort of a leadership standard that works. Then you do need to teach them. Mentor them, teach them, ideally formally. But here's the thing with training a really small number of people are capable of a really small number of behavior changes after training. There's tons of research about training, money is wasted. So the third part of stack, assess, is most important. And so we invented this at Qualtrics. We called it the manager effectiveness score, where we had employees evaluate the manager, not 360, not the manager's manager, but the employees only. It was behavior oriented, it wasn't a popularity contest. The tools offer confidentiality thresholds. So there wasn't a ton of selection bias. We got really strong answers and those are the people doing the real work. Those are the people we're fighting to attract, develop and retain. They're the ones being led. So they're the people whose perspective I'm most interested in what, you know, how their manager's doing. So managers always had gaps, always had gaps. And then we'd coach them to close those gaps, uh, specifically around where their gaps were. And repeat that over and over. Assess coach, assess coach. Once a quarter, actually, we would assess the managers from the employee's perspective. And then we could actually measure how well our managers were leading. So there's all kinds of reasons that managers fail, but only training them and not having the guts. And trust me, organizationally and politically, it's very hard to get senior folks to get their heads around the idea that the employee is going to be allowed to evaluate the manager. I was consulting for a big three auto firm and they wanted to do exactly this and they're the the most senior people in the company. Shut it down because, well, we can imagine all, all the reasons. So that's the basic idea is that there's not a systemic approach to making managers better. And then the sort of punctuation on that, at Qualtrics in four years, we added 500 managers from about 150 to 650, something like that. And they got measurably better every single quarter while I was there. And that's because we had a robust, you know, fully baked approach to making every manager great that didn't just rely on mentorship. It didn't just rely on sort of a bespoke training. It didn't just rely on teaching. It relied on a a carefully developed aligned system.
1: So is your favorite position now that you need to have kind of a unified management training system and not do as you described that smorgasbord because I think you have two primary problems. you got a new person who's in there, who's in the middle of the food fight and is learning things but can't even process the problems that are erupting in the moment. And then you have the other people who were brought in who might not have been assessed correctly in the beginning. So you have people who are They they are even whether they were assessed or not, they're going to be good managers they can be good managers you have the other people who weren't assessed well if that's the situation i don't know do you have like a little if they have not implemented a an entire system to try to make this thing how would you attack those two fronts on those two problems so you got an overwhelmed new manager or the manager who was never assessed who maybe they're not right there or we can't figure out whether they're right
0: here's the good news
1: okay. so i
0: finally have good news
1: the good news is i actually
0: i think Short, there's some, you know, potentially people with actual severe mental illness, you know, setting them aside because I don't want to be hyperbolic. Actually, everybody can learn to be a good manager. There's this notion that the people with charisma or the extroverts have a, have a leg up. They might in the very short run, you know, you start in a new team. You're kind of cool, well-spoken, outgoing. The team will feel a little settled. They'll say,
1: oh, wow, Brandon's great, you know. I got the impression there was that woman at the top of the hill in that beautiful dress with, and who is, who beckons follow me. And that's very attractive. So especially at the beginning, that passion that it's either at the start of a new regime or the start of a new company or the start of a new practice. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: And so it settles people down. They feel like the manager's great. The reality is though, your entire ethos needs to be around enabling the success of the people on your team and introverts do that extremely well people that are not charismatic can do that extremely well and give it six months uh, the great managers are the ones who brush and floss charisma people a lot of times they're the teeth whiteners <laughs> and so not the charisma's is bad It's not inherently bad, but it becomes a a large crutch. And a lot of times the charisma or the extrovert charisma, people extroverts don't go do the brushing and flossing stuff because they lean on this capability that, you know, kind of fakes people into into thinking they're really good leaders. So what you could do, by the way, and I don't mean to plug my website, but I did it kind of anticipate this question. I I actually on this page, you know, when they win, you win dot com slash tools. Not only did I put this rubric for hiring people for leadership disposition, including internal promotions, I also put a couple of tools on there. One's what I call quick and dirty manager effectiveness index. So you can get yourself assessed. You can literally take that survey, make your own copy, send it out to your employees and get an assessment on how you're doing as a leader. And that'll highlight for you where your gaps are.
1: Can I ask a dumb in the trenches question about this in a larger organization where you have more reports? So I could really see that you're talking about, hey, we, we can rig it for anonymity in a smaller business where someone gets excited about that idea. They're like, I want to have people assess me. I want people, but there's only five people who are going to assess and they're going to know dang well do you think they would be able to pick out, they're going to know dang well who those people are. Does that kind of mess up that thing? Or it no? can,
0: it can for sure. Yeah. Okay. So there would be a lot of explanation. Listen, I really want, so first of all, the, the tools that are used by and large, and, and by the way, a small company can have Qualtrics, for example, for cheap. They have confidentiality thresholds that you can set four or five people, which means the manager will only get a result or a report if they have at least, you know, five, let's say direct reports. That way the manager has a real hard time finding out who said what what I put together is not anonymous. It's, and by the way, that also automatically cascades through the hierarchy of the organization. What I put together is just quick and dirty. You would have to, if you put took the thing that I built and you put it out to your team, you would have to do it like send it with a note that says, listen, I really wanna be the best leader for all of you that I possibly can. The only way I can do that is if you tell me the truth. There's nothing in my being that's about retaliation. There's nothing in my being that's gonna, I'm not gonna be upset. I'm doing this to learn so I can grow and be a better leader. I'm begging you, please answer this as honestly as you can. And then maybe you get a little better outcome, but you're right. You're, by not having built-in confidentiality, you're creating a little bit of a selection bias and you may, get, you may get told you're the greatest manager on earth and that may not be true. So there's some risk there, of course. But the tools that you would you know, buy in a slightly larger company or that a company like Banfield, for example, I, I don't mean to, I just know them because that's where I take my dog. Sure. They could easily have a, a Qualtrics or a Glint license and do this extremely well with confidentiality thresholds and get great information from their employees. Yeah, so you're right. There's some selection bias there if you, if you don't have a tool that automatically handles confidentiality.
1: And so I do want at the time you you gave the positive phrase which is look anybody can learn how to be a good manager and so that being true it also goes with the cliche that gets thrown around and i I think i saw it in the book you know people say people don't leave bad jobs they leave bad bosses and so i'm wondering when a person is wants this feedback and they get this feedback back when you have looked at that through the time you've been you know, giving these surveys out are bad bosses. Oh, they're all familiar in these ways. Or does it seem like every bad boss has his or her own unique DNA of badness? So in other words, are there a few things that collect and you're like, Oh, these are the ones every single quote unquote bad boss hits, or are they like all unique snowflakes? Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're, they're not unique. Okay. So (laughs) there's sort of two dimensions here. I'd say first is Just because you are currently a bad boss does not mean you need to remain a bad boss. So assess coach, assess coach, assess coach. Importantly, that assessment, you know, the system that we'd installed at Qualtrics, and I'm in the process now of installing at Goodwater, it's not assess fire. You know, because that's the fastest <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. That's the fast way to get employees to stop telling the truth. Because even if they don't like their boss, they don't. Nobody loves the feeling of their boss getting canned. Right. But I did. I have one manager. There's one very senior manager at Qualtrics. He just refused. He just thought he knew about management. We offered him, "Hey, here's coaching." He ignored it. Here's, "Hey, you're a brilliant artist. You can. You don't need to manage a team." He thought it was so important. And over, you know, it went on way too long because he had senior relationships. He was a little protected. Little, It was a little bit of politics. But ultimately, new CEO, new CEO says, sorry, we got to sideline this guy. His people are miserable. The sin of this guy isn't that he messed up as a manager. Everybody does. I do. I teach the stuff. I wrote a book. I make mistakes. The sin is he refused to change. So that's dimension one. That's what a cess coach is all about, is getting better. So you touched on a really fascinating point. The reason I don't say they're snowflakes is because the job is actually pretty simple so this is what i learned in writing the book is there's a very small number of behaviors you know we're going to get into this but i call them the big three which break down into 12 specific behaviors that when practiced measurably and predictably lead to more engaged employees and better business results so a bad manager by in this definition is usually just missing a few of these behaviors They're not manifesting them well for their team. They might even believe they're doing it. They might believe they're doing behavior X or behavior Y. But again, we're assessing from the perspective of the team, the people being led, and their perspective is the one that matters. If you think you're giving great direction to your team and they have no idea what's expected of them, then you're wrong, manager. I don't care what you think. The employees aren't hearing it correctly. So either the employees are right and you got to be better at giving direction or the employees are wrong and you need different employees. I'm not sure which, you know, but so this is why I say that a bad manager isn't really a snowflake because one, they can improve, but two, the world of behaviors required to be a strong manager is actually very small. And so it's very hard to be extremely unique snowflake when the world of behavior is required to measurably, and predictably get more engaged employees and better business results. It's actually quite hard to be some sort of random snowflake.
1: Want to learn more about Russ's ideas in the brand new book? He provides data to back him up at whenyouwintheywin.com forward slash the hyphen book. That wraps up today's episode of the veterinary business success show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know I appreciate you.